Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellen podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Well, good morning and welcome to Life in Deep Ellen. Uh, we are so glad that many of you are here. And these lights are bright, so, oh, there you are. I can now see you. Uh, so we are excited that you guys are here. Welcome to worship here at Life in Deep Ellum. And also a special welcome to all of you are, uh, who are at home watching on Facebook. Um, if you're joining us virtually, we want to say welcome to you guys here this morning as well. Um, I know that for some of us, we have been around week to week. Some of you, this might be your very first time. And so if this is your very first time to Life in Deep Ellum, I just want to say a special welcome. Uh, my name is Dr. Kevin Gandy. I'm a professor over at Dallas Seminary. And I've been working here at Life in Deep Ellum uh, with the board and with some of the staff in a consulting role uh, for the last couple months. And it's been really cool getting to know many of you guys. As I look out, I recognize some familiar faces. Thanks for welcome, welcoming me in. Um, I also recognize some of our students, some of our middle school and high school students who I got to have coffee and donuts with in the cafe last week. You guys are awesome. So shout out to you guys. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's so good to see you guys. So... If, you, um, if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, we've been in a sermon series called Time and Place, where we've been looking at stories of characters in the Bible. And over the last three weeks, we just wrapped up a three-week series on Ruth and her life and her character, and we looked at, at the things that she embodied in her persona. This week, we're actually going to move on to another character, which we'll look at for the next three weeks. Um, I will be kicking this off today, and then Daniela, who did our announcements, will be here next week, um, assuming that she doesn't have a baby uh, next week. Um, we were talking with her earlier, like, it'd be so cool if she was just preaching, you know, and baby comes then. How epic of a story would that be? But it probably would be very bad for you, Daniela, so we obviously don't hope for that. But uh, Daniela will, Lord willing, be here next week, and then on week three, we will hopefully be here together to do Q&A with you guys about John, which is really exciting and also really intimidating. But um, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, we will be looking at John today. How many of you uh, like confrontation? Yeah, you like, oh, okay, I see like one hand. So, so I see some of you are like, maybe sometimes, most of us would probably say we don't like confrontation. How many of you hate confrontation? Okay, quite a few hands. Yeah, me too, right? I hate confronting people about anything negative, right? Because usually confrontation is usually a bad thing. Uh, a couple years ago, actually quite a few years ago now, but I was uh, serving as a middle school pastor at a church here in Dallas, and uh, this was at a denominational church where we did a thing called confirmation, which is basically when our seventh grade students would take this class for a whole year, and they learned about their faith, and they learned about the scriptures, and they learned about God, and then at the end of the year, they had to make this decision, hey, you know, do you want to be confirmed by our body in your faith? So we would do this, you know, uh, this in the service once a year, and it was usually in the traditional worship center, which was like this kind of gothic sanctuary, right? And it had been this sort of sacred thing for many, 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 many decades, as long as the church had been around. And so this year, we had led our confirmation class, and I realized that most of our students were attending our modern worship service. This was over in the fellowship hall. And so we had the bright idea of, hey, what if we moved it from the historic sanctuary to the modern fellowship hall, right? That's where they attend. That's where they worship. And let's say that didn't go very well for Kevin, right? So I will never forget getting this email from this, this mom of a seventh grader. And I remember her saying, you've ruined my kid's confirmation. 
And I was, I was like, well, don't you guys attend the, the modern service over in the fellowship hall? And she's like, yes, but I don't want my kid wearing jeans and being, being confirmed next door we grill the burgers in the fellowship hall. And so I was like, okay, you know, clearly she's upset. So I went over to her house, right? And I said, hey, can we talk this out? I, you know, I just, I want to I wanna resolve this. I'd love to talk with you more about it. And she pointed at me and she said, you've ruined my kid's confirmation." And she pointed her finger at me, and I'll never forget feeling this, like, guilt and this shame of being confronted by this middle school mom. And what was my favorite part was that her seventh grade son looked at her and said, Mom, it's okay. I don't really care where I get confirmed. I just want to know, are my friends going to be there? And do I have to dress up, right? You see, in that moment, I learned something about confrontation. See, many of us, when we have confrontation. It's this negative thing that gets us kind of in the mode of a defensiveness, and none of us like it, right? But yet, we are confronted with things every single day. Some things are good, some things are bad, right? Sometimes people may confront you with a truth of, hey, you look great today, right? We welcome that sort of confrontation. But sometimes we're driving along the 75 or the 30 and we see a speed limit sign and we are confronted with the truth of the speed limit. And I personally don't like that truth, right? That's a negative confrontation for me because everyone else is going like 100 and I am going, why do I have to drive 75 if everyone else doesn't have to, right? Anyway, off that subject. See, when we think about scripture, we are confronted with scripture and truth in the Bible all the time. When we think about the truths that are found in God's word, we are confronted with this. The idea of confrontation means this. This is the definition of confrontation. It simply means to be presented with something so difficult that dealing with it cannot be avoided. You see, we feel this tension in our lives because many of us, when we read the Bible, we start reading and we start looking and we're like, you know what? My life doesn't often measure up. Because I live in sin, because I'm human, because I do things in my life that go against God's, God's scriptures all day long, right? I'll probably leave here today and think something or say something that I didn't mean to say, and it goes against scripture. So we are constantly in this confrontation with God's word of trying to live in accordance with God's standards for our life. And so we're always in this balance between the truth of scriptures and the love of God. Right? And many of us sort of land on one of two sides of this token. Sometimes we get caught up in the truth of scriptures and it just causes us to fall into sort of legalism about following all the rules. The other side of the token would be to go, well, you know what, that's nice, but God loves us. And so we're just going to kind of just, you know, revel in God's, in God's love. And, you know, it's okay not to necessarily have to follow all of these rules. There's a tension between following the commands of scripture, following the truth of Christ, and living in his love and in his grace that God gives each and every one of us. And there's a tension that we wrestle with in our life and in the scriptures. And today when we look at John, we're going to look at a disciple of Jesus. A disciple just means follower, right? We all follow somebody, right? I follow food blogs. I follow the people who go around telling us all the new cool places to go to eat in Deep Ellum and in Dallas, right? You probably follow things in your life. And so a disciple is a follower, Jesus had some followers that sort of tracked around with him, and one of them was a guy named John. And John was an was a example of how to do this between truth and love really well. Because many of us struggle with this. We go back and forth between truth and love. But John modeled both. We're going to look at his life. 
We're going to look at his character. I'm going to start the conversation, and Daniela's going to finish it next week, right? And today, I'm going to focus on the truth side. Next week, Daniela will bring us home and talk about the love side, because we all frame things in our life. If we think about looking at at the world, we we all look through a lens, a frame. And on that frame for John is truth and love, and today, we're going to think about the frame of truth. And by looking at John's life, we're going to gain a little bit more perspective about Jesus. In the New Testament, there's four Gospels. So there's just a little bit of background. So some of you are going, okay, this John guy, who was this? We look at the Bible, there's four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the stories of Jesus' life as told by the disciples. And those four disciples give a story and a testament about Jesus. Three of them are very similar. Mark, Matthew, and Luke all have the sort of similar style, similar uh, teachings, and they all sort of have similar stories. And so we call these the synoptic gospels, meaning that they all sort of resonate with each other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then there's the book of John, right? The book of John's different than the other three. It's the only book that was written after the other three. So the book of John was written about 20 years later, 20 years after the other three gospels were written. So it was focusing on Jesus's divinity. John has a particular focus on Jesus's divinity and calling here to earth as God. And there's one big distinct difference that I want us to think about as we think about the book of John. There's actually no referenced author. The other gospels reference the author. There's no author represented by the gospel of John. Biblical scholars have consensus around the fact that it most likely was John because of the way he alludes to himself as Jesus's most beloved disciple, right? But when we look at the gospel of John and then we look at some of his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, later on in the New Testament, those also don't reference John. And many people believe that John wrote these because of the style of the writing, the way that he approached certain things, the way that he posited himself in the scriptures. But I just want to throw that out there, that we're focusing on John and his writings with this in mind. And so today we're going to look at quite a few different writings uh, in different books because Mark addresses John, other, other gospels address John. We're going to look at some of John's writings and then also some other ones and some historic narrative that looks at John's life. I want you to think about your college days. How many of you did like dumb things in college or as, as a young person? Okay, quite a few hands, right? We all did dumb things like earlier in life, right? This past weekend, I was in New York City visiting a friend of mine from Marquette when I was in college. And we were, we were uh, in, in our apartment one evening and we were, pulled out our laptops and, and we were just thinking about, hey, like, let's reminisce about all the memories from college. And as we were looking at these pictures, we realized how dumb we were. All of our pictures were of such dumb things, right? At the time, we thought we were just ballers, right? We thought we were awesome. And looking back, we're like, we were, we were dweebs. We were nerdy, right? Like, who, who are these people that we're looking at in these photographs? And that's because as we go through life, as we look back on our life, we gain perspective. We gain perspective. We gain wisdom about something in our past. And that's what John does in his writings, Because the other disciples, they wrote their gospel soon after Jesus resurrected. But John's writings come at the end of his life. And so as he looks back, he sort of filtered through, what are the most important things that I want people to see? Chances are, if he had taken a snapshot of his life right after Jesus resurrected, it would look very different than 20 years later when he looks back and goes, I just want to give people the meat of the story. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Today, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at John's path. John's position, and John's passion. 
before we dive into scriptures, let's read. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, as we open up your word today, may we gratefully receive it. Lord, may we clearly understand it, and may we faithfully apply it to our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, today we're going to look at the first picture of John. As we look through that lens of truth, the first thing we're going to talk about is path. Everyone say path. Okay, everyone say path. All right, that's better. John's path. How did he get here, right? If we really want to think about John, we have to look back at the beginning of his life when he first decided to follow Jesus. So we're going to look at an interaction with a guy named John the Baptist. This is a different John, okay? Not the John we're talking about, not John the disciple, but John the Baptist. He came before Jesus and was this prophet living in the wilderness. So Mark 1, chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem went out to them confessing their sins, being baptized by him, And John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, eating locust and wild honey. That's Mark chapter 1. We look at this guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist was prophesied in the Old Testament to go into the desert and preach about Jesus, make straight Jesus' path, tell everyone, Jesus is coming, right? But he was a weird dude. This guy's wearing, uh, is wearing camel hair, he's wearing a leather belt, he's eating what's an oversized cricket and some wild honey. Can you imagine eating a locust and drizzling wild honey on it, right? I think that's the most disgusting thing I've ever thought of in my entire life. I mean, that's what a locust is, like an oversized cricket, right? And I, I don't know if, hopefully they're cooking it, I have no idea what they do with that. Um, I'll stick with velvet taco things. But when I think of that image, you know, here's this wild guy out in the wilderness saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, get ready, right? And who goes to visit him? People from Jerusalem and the Judean countryside. And in that were a group of teenagers, right? Some teenagers went out to view Jesus. When I was a youth pastor out in LA, um, we, had a, we had a bunch of students in our youth group who would go down to Melrose, and they would go to these stores that were called, we called them hype beast stores. Are you guys familiar with this term? And it was these stores on Melrose Avenue, way overpriced. I, was never, I could never afford this, right? But somehow these teenagers had money, have no idea how. And they would go down and buy these like $200 t-shirts and like $600 pairs of, $600 pairs of shoes from these stores like Supreme and all these other stores. And they would go down to Melrose and they would... They just got caught up in the hype. They go down on Thursday when they drop the shipment and they would buy up a load of stuff and then they'd go back and sell it at school the next week, right? This was this kind of hype that the teenagers would go do on Melrose Avenue in LA. And they would take Instagram photos of them wearing it. They would look cool and then they would sell it to their friends the next day for a profit, right? It's actually ingenious, right? But that's what teenagers do. Teenagers and often adults, but particularly teenagers like to follow hype. And I really see that this is exactly what's happening with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is this weird dude eating his oversized crickets and honey, and all the teenagers in town are like, I want to go see that guy, right? I want to go see that dude, right? He seems cool. I want to go check that out. So they go. And one of those teenagers 
is a guy named John the Baptist, right? We believe that John the Baptist may have been the youngest disciple, right? He probably was a little bit older than what we think of when we think teenager, but was probably somewhere in his early stages of life and was the youngest of all disciples. So John 1, verse 35, is going to pick up the story of what happens next. So John 1, verse 35, we're going to flip over to John's words about what happens next. So the next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples, When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. I want to pause there because these two disciples are thought to be Andrew and John the disciple. Andrew was referenced later. John the Baptist is alluded to later in scriptures. But scholars believe that John was that one of those disciples that turned from John the Baptist to follow Jesus right? And it says, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying, right? Where do you live? Come, Jesus said, and you will see. He went and saw where they were staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So when we look at this story, we recognize that these, some of these teenagers got caught up in this hype, but there was something about Jesus that made them turn and follow, and then and we turn back to Mark here in a few seconds. So if you, you can go ahead and turn back to Mark. I realize we're flipping back and forth between stories. But as we turn back to Mark, we're going to see that what, what, what John the disciple may have initially got caught up in terms of hype, he eventually followed Jesus because he saw him as Lord. And this is pivotal, right? We recognize that a lot of us follow hype, but there's something that makes us stick long term because hype will fade away. But there's something about Jesus that causes them to follow. So as we turn back to Mark and we keep going in the story, in verse 16, we see that moment when John is called again. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. They left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little bit farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. That's their disciple, right? They were in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and and they left their faith, their father Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is one of my favorite verses of Scripture. When James and his brother John are in the boat with their dad Zebedee. This is what they did. They were fishermen. And Jesus comes along, and they probably were like, oh, yeah, this is that guy that we saw back in the wilderness, right, with John the Baptist, and he said he was Lord. And Jesus comes and says, follow me, and they get out of the boat, leaving their father behind and the hired servants, and they go and follow Jesus. And many of us are quick to ask, why? Why would they follow Jesus? But that's the wrong question. We know why they followed Jesus, because they had already met Jesus earlier on when John the Baptist called him out as the Messiah. At this moment, he's not a stranger. He's somebody that they remember, they have heard of, they've spent time with. And they get out of the boat and follow him. So the real question is not, why did they follow him? The real question is, why did they stay? Why did they continue to follow him? And we're going to come back to that at the very end of the sermon. Because they probably would soon ask themselves, um, 
Are we sure we're following the right guy, right? Is this guy crazy, right? Did we make the right decision? Remember our dad, Zebedee's in the boat. Maybe we should go back, right? I mean, we can't just leave our job and follow some crazy guy, right? At some point, they probably wrestled with this. And that's a question we'll get to at the very end. We look at John's path to following Jesus. It was this zigzag path where first he follows him by hype, but then he follows him because of devotion. John's path was one of interesting beginnings, But that leads us into his position. Everyone say position. The second thing we're going to look at today is John's position. John maintains a a firm position on what he calls truth. In fact, he uses the Greek word for truth over 25 times in the Gospel of John and more than 20 times in his three letters. So when we think about truth, we realize that John is incessant about truth. So I'm going to throw up a slide, and this is going to be the very beginning of his, of his gospel, John 1, 1 through 5. We're going to look at this. What I want you to do is, is I want you to take one minute on the clock, and I want you to see all of the truths about Jesus that you can pull out of this scripture in one minute. Okay, so we're going to throw one minute on the clock. Go. Notes app, underline in your Bible. What are some of the truths? All right. I didn't see that. I couldn't find a timer up there, but hopefully that was one minute. I think I gave you a minute. So let's put that slide back up. So what are those truths that you saw in this particular scripture? Just shot them out. This is interactive. He's been, there He's been there since the beginning. That was one of the ones I found. Yep. What else? He was the word, right? He was, he was the scriptures. Yes. That's the second one. He was the light. That's the third one. All things were made in him. He's a creator. That's the fourth one. He is God. That's the fifth one. He is life. I think that's what I heard you say. He is life. That's the sixth one. And there's one more. Yep, he was light. That's one of the six. Yeah, he's not darkness. We could probably throw that up to seven. That's a good one, Wendy. There's one other one. There's nothing before him. Yep, so he was at the beginning. That's right, he was at the beginning. Those were the key truths about Jesus. He's eternal. He's been there since the beginning, right? He was the word. He's divine power meets divine wisdom. He's distinct from God in person. So there's God the Father, and then there's God the Son. There's distinction here, right? The word was with God and the word was God. So we recognize if Jesus is the word, he's separate from God the Father, but he's also God himself. He's, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, yeah, so she asked, does this mean only the scriptures or just language in general? Here we recognize that this would be the holy scriptures, yeah. So there's probably some ties that we could take to language and actual narrative over time. But here we would see the word of God as being the narrative scriptures given to all humanity. That was then documented in the text, but it also could be things that were received by the early disciples. Absolutely. So we recognize that he is God, he is creator, he is life, he is the Greek zoe, right? That's spiritual life, very different than bios, which is physical life. And he was a light of all people. You see, when we look at John's position, we think about his position on truth. These are the truths that John is exhibiting. He's very caught up in this idea that Jesus is, is a human being, but he's, he's also God, 
right? And all the, the, the gospels resonate this, but the one particular thing about John that sticks out is in his truth about who Jesus was, he was very particular about focusing on his divinity, right? That he wasn't just some guy. He was God in the flesh, And he was very black and white. When we look at John's truth, sometimes it's hard for us to recognize because he was very cut and dry. You're either with God or you aren't. You either live in the light with God or you live in darkness away from God. When we look at this truth of scriptures, we look at John's life and we go, this is a guy who just sells it straight up, right? You either follow God or you don't. You're either with him or you're not. You're either in the light or you're in darkness. And this is sometimes tough for us because we like living in darkness, Right? In the darkness, we can do whatever we want. We can think however we want. We can act and behave however we want because people aren't seeing us. But in reality, when we follow the teachings of Jesus, we step into the light. You see, darkness is the absence of light. There's no such thing as darkness. There's only such thing as light. And darkness is the absence of light, the absence of God. If you want to live in the light I encourage you to step into the path of Jesus and let him overwhelm you with his love and with his grace. One way that we live in the light, because we, we, we balance this, this all the time. We like to recede into the darkness, but God calls us to step into the light. One way that you can do that this week is in your small group or in your community. This is why we need community around us. This is why I need people in my life to go, Kevin, remember that, remember that time the other day when you said something that wasn't nice, Right? that's not okay, right? That's not who God is. And I'm like, yes, you're right. I need to be reminded of this. That's why we have people around us to remind us of who we are called to be in God's image. And John helps us do that by saying, live in the light. We look at the position of God. He calls strict obedience to the word of God. He says, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to follow this book. And we recognize that this sometimes is hard for us to hear because we're confronted with the scriptures in our life, and it calls out our sin. And a lot of us don't like that, myself included. We feel guilt about that, and that's the hard part about John's truth, is that we recognize that our lives look very different from God. And we step into into the gospel of John, we look at his, his calling to truth and says, you've got to follow Jesus, because he's God, he's the creator of the universe. And we do so, it results in radical transformation. That brings us to the third and last thing we look at today, and that's John's passion. Everyone say passion. When we look at John's passion, John was a faithful, passionate guy, but that sometimes got him into trouble. And we're gonna see that happen on Luke 9 in verse 46. You see, John and his brother James, they were nicknamed by Jesus the sons of thunder because they were so passionate and zealous in their, in their way of life. So in Luke 9, we see something happening on verse 46, where an argument started amongst the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had the child stand beside him. And he said, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, welcomes God. For it is the one who is the least among you who becomes the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Jesus said, do not stop him for whoever is not against you is for him. You see, John's passion about Jesus, he missed the point. They were arguing on the road with Jesus. Who's Jesus' favorite? And Jesus was looking for them to confess, but they don't. They're just silent. 
And Jesus says, if you want to be first, you got to be last. But John misses the point. John's so passionate about following Jesus as Messiah and Lord that he just completely misses the message. He says, wait, but there was a guy in the town that we just came from, and he was casting out demons in your name. And so we, we stopped him because he's not one of us, right? John was so passionate about Jesus, he ended up creating a cool kids club around Jesus. How many of us can think of people that do this every day? There are Christians and churches all over the world who are casting a hard boundary around Jesus and going, you know what? You're not one of us. You don't belong here. You don't belong in our circle. You don't belong in our club. And how dare Christian churches do that? Because Christians are embracing of the world around them. We look at Jesus, one of the things in, God's, in John's gospel that doesn't appear in the rest is stories such as Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus was quick to connect with people around him that didn't fit in the cool kids club. And so he calls out John and says, do not do that. You see, a lot of us in the church are quick at best to say, you're not one of us, you don't fit here. Or at worst telling people that they don't belong at all. And that's why I love the mission of life in Deep Ellum, that nobody fits, but everybody belongs. Because Jesus looks at us and he says, you belong right here with me. See, John was always committed to truth, but he learned over time that he had to balance it with love. What started out is this zealous passion and boldness and ambition and drive to go and live into teachings of Jesus over the course of his life resulted in him going, we have to teach truth, but we must love well. We have to teach truth and love well. And that's what we learn about Jesus as we look at his life and his character, that he taught truth. And over the course of his life, he learned to love well. When we look at the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, they resonate over and over this idea of loving people around us in truth. And that's something that we have to take into our lives. We've looked at these issues of John's life as we look at his path and then his, pa- his, his, path and then his position and then his, his passion. We start to get a, a glimpse of who John is. And this is how we'll wrap up today. The British author and scholar C.S. Lewis, a professor at Oxford University, was a devout atheist for most of his life. As he thought about Jesus, he never could say yes to who Jesus was. He said, I just, I just can't wrap my head around it. Well, there was a group of men in his life, this group of men that were called the Inklings. And one of them was a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien and Lewis were friends. And so every day they would go out behind Magdalene College at Oxford University and they would walk along this path called Addison's Path. And they would, they would be underneath the trees that would gather around them and Tolkien and Lewis would debate. And then they would talk about life. And then they would meet in the pub with other, other uh, uh, literature experts and other writers and thinkers and philosophers. It's a great pub. You can still go there. The Eagle and Child in Oxford. They would sit and they would revel in the literature and the things that they taught. But over time, as Lewis and Tolkien would walk along Addison's path, Tolkien had a divine interaction with with Lewis, where he actually led Lewis, C.S. Lewis, to follow Jesus. And it was there that Lewis said, I became one of the most unlikely converts to Christianity in all of England. And he said, I began to realize that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, 
or he's the God of my life. We look at this, we, earlier we looked at the question of not why did the disciples follow Jesus? Why did they get out of the boat? That's the wrong question. The real question is why did they stay? And this is how I want us to wrap up our time together here. To think about this question. Why did those disciples stay? The reason why they stayed is we look at the end of their lives. All of the disciples of Jesus, were, they died horrific deaths. Peter was crucified upside down. Matthew was stabbed. John, who we're looking at today, was even boiled in oil but survived. And then sent to Patmos where he spent the end of his days and he wrote Revelation. See, all of the disciples, when faced with death, they had the opportunity to reject Jesus. They said, reject Jesus or die. And all of them chose death. You see, if Jesus was a liar, they would have chose life. If Jesus was a crazy guy, they would have chose life. But if Jesus was Lord, in that decision, they chose death. All of the disciples, including John, lost their lives for what they believed in. It's one of the most powerful testaments to the existence of Jesus. And we don't just find this in scripture. We find it in historic narrative and stories of the disciples' life outside of the scriptures in historic narrative. When we look at this, we realize that these disciples, including John, gave everything they had to continue following Jesus. If Jesus was just some liar or crazy person, they would have went back to the boat. But instead, they got out of the boat, they followed Jesus, and followed Jesus to the very ends of their lives. John focuses on new life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Talking about Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Today, we looked at John's path, his position, and his passion. When we think about John's teachings on truth, we realize that we see a teenage boy who got caught up in the hype of Jesus, or in the hype of, uh, of this guy coming as the Messiah, but then followed him because he realized the truth that this guy was speaking. And as he followed his truth, and he spent time with Jesus as his Lord, he was radically transformed. And that's what happens when we follow Jesus. We are radically transformed. We are made new in his image. He learned his truth, and he taught them to others. But first, he had to get out of the boat. And so my question for you is, have you gotten out of the boat to follow Jesus as your Messiah and as your Lord? Some of you may have done that and are following Jesus and we pray that you would continue to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. But some of you may have one foot in the boat and one foot out. And I challenge you to think about why are you straddling the side of the boat? Some of us like the comfort of our old life. We don't want to leave our old life behind and be radically transformed by Jesus. That's scary. And Jesus yet comes to us and he says, come and follow me. Some of you may still be sitting in the boat, have never stepped out. And I encourage you to think about what would it look like to step out of the boat and say yes to Jesus. Jesus is the only thing in our life, at the end of our life, that will matter. My possessions won't matter. My stuff won't matter. My friendships won't matter because all of that's going to fade away. When I'm faced with death at the end of my life, just like the disciples, just like John, we have to make a choice. Did I say yes to Jesus, my Lord and my creator? Or did I just follow the passions of earth? And I encourage you to do that. If you've never made that decision today, that could be one of your decisions. 
These are things to think about as we think about the truth of John's scriptures. Next week, we'll learn more about how John taught in his love. But I want to pray for us this morning as we wrap up our time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for saving me. Lord, I realize that I can't save myself. We can't save ourselves. We can try all we want to. But God, when we are confronted by the truths of scriptures, we realize that you are calling us to follow and to follow into new life. Lord, we pray that you would do so. Call us out of that boat. May we not remain in our old existence, but follow you into something new, something scary. I recognize that this is hard. This is difficult. This is unknown. God, even as a church, we are called into something new, scary, unknown. And I pray that you would give us peace. I pray that you would call us forward in obedience of your truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.